Oh, not so. so. Is anybody's buddy missing? I just see a great big empty. I couldn't hear? Oh, but, okay. That's ter- certainly permissible. Oh, yeah. So, the fact that I brought my computer today does not imply that you're about to get a lecture, but I thought I would give you the straight teachings on Samatha without a sign from Padmasambhava himself. Why paraphrase when we can have it directly from him? And so we move now for this week to this practice of Shamatha without a sign. It's also called just awareness of awareness. It's taught in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism and it's also it's called the Vijnana Kasina in the Pali Canon. The, just the straight shamatha practice of just being present in consciousness itself is also taught, and the Buddha referred to this as the most profound of all shamatha methods. Uh, that has a pretty wide reputation in late, later Indian Mahayana Buddhism, as well as Tibetan Buddhism as well. And there are, as I said, it's ta- taught in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Most strongly emphasized, I believe, in the, the Nyingma tradition, especially Dzogchen. So here's just a very brief preface. I'm going to front load this and give some guidance during, during the session, but actually I think you'll find you don't need much. So here's straight from Padmasambhava in the book called Natural Liberation, which I translated under Gyatrodhimuchi's uh, guidance. He says, according to the custom of some teaching traditions, you are first introduced to the view, such as the Dzogchen view. So first you get a good s- s- scholarly training, theoretical, academic training, and then if you're so motivated, then you go on to the meditation. He said, you are first introduced to the view, and upon that basis, you, take, you seek the meditative state. Now, the meditative state in this context is really referring to shamatha as your platform in meditative equipoise, which is then your launching pad for all other practices, right? So, in this tradition, he's saying, but he said, this makes it difficult to identify pristine awareness. If you so overload it, if you, so get, you get so caught up in conceptualization and theories and books and texts and interpretations and so forth, that actually could maybe weigh you down a little bit. Could, doesn't necessarily, for actually coming to the immediate experiential realization of pristine awareness. So, again, that sentence, according to the custom of some teaching traditions, you are first introduced to the view, and upon that basis you seek the meditative state. This makes it difficult to identify pristine awareness. In this tradition, you first establish the meditative state, shamatha, and then on that basis, you're introduced to the view. This profound point makes it impossible for you not to identify pristine awareness. Therefore, first settle your mind in its natural state, then bring forth genuine shamatha in your mind stream and reveal the nature of pristine awareness. So that's his introduction. For those of you who are interested in or have a background in the Galupa tradition, lo and behold, Pinchen uh, Losen Jensen, the extraordinary scholar and contemplative who is the tutor of the fifth Dalai Lama, he makes exactly the same point. He doesn't refer to Rikpa because he's, coming, he's speaking now from the Mahamudra tradition, but he said according to some traditions, you have 31st and meditation second. According to this tradition, Mahamudra, it's meditation first and theory second, letting the theory, the view, the view of reality, emerge out of your meditative state rather than having it being, how do you say, imported from outside. I must say, I find that enormously appealing. So, I'm going to read what he says here, and that, but it's very little, and then we're going to go right, this is the meditation, so, so I'm going to front load it. This is his direct guidance on the Shamatha without a sign, which is teaching after having already explained 
uh, other methods of meditation going from coarse to subtle. And now he comes to this one as the culminating, most subtle and most profound. Okay? So, so you can just listen to it now and then we'll do it in the practice just momentarily. I'm going to read very little. While steadily gazing into the space in front of you, without meditating on anything, steadily concentrate your consciousness without wavering in the space in front of you. Increase stability, that is really concentrate, and then relax again. Occasionally seek out what is that consciousness that is concentrating. Steadily concentrate again, and then check it out again. Do that in an alternating fashion. Even if there are problems of laxity and lethargy, that will dispel them. In all your activities, rely upon unwavering mindfulness. Do that for one day. Today. There's your, those are your marching orders, your job description for one day. Okay? And by the way, just this morning, moments ago, I sent off my whole set of notes on all three shamatha methods and then a little bit on the fourth method, which we'll get into next week. And so those have been sent to the front desk. You can, it's accessible there. I've also sent them to the Santa Barbara Institute, Sangha Wamu, asking her to post it on the SBI website. So people listening by way of podcast, you can have the text that I just read, the whole text, and nothing but the text, uh, free download online. Okay? And everybody here can get it. You can, I'm, I'm sure for this mi minor cost, they will be happy to print it out for you if you so desire. And you say, I'm too cheap. I just keep on bringing my computer. Hola, so. So now let's please find a comfortable position, and we'll do just what Padmasambhava suggested. This practice does come in multiple stages, and what you just heard is the very first stage. A spirit of loving kindness, aspiring to do something truly wonderful for yourself, to alleviate the causes of suffering, to bring forth an ever-increasing experience, a deepening experience of genuine happiness. Settle your body in its natural state, relax, still, and vigilant. Utterly release all control and preference over the respiration as you allow it to settle in its own natural ryth rhythm, releasing deeply and fully in body, speech, and mind with every out-breath. 
releasing all concerns about the future and the past, allow your awareness to rest in stillness, in ease and comfort in the present moment, naturally bright and luminous. For a little while, calm the turbulence of the conceptual mind with mindfulness of breathing.
let your eyes be at least partially open. Evenly rest your gaze in the space in front of you without focusing on anything at all. But now simply rest your awareness in its own place without deliberately focusing your attention on anything, any object, whether it's objective or subjective. Just be present in the present moment, literally without doing anything, but simply being aware. Don't focus on any object, but neither should you try to block any appearance. Just let them be and sustain the flow of mindful presence without distraction, being carried off by any sensory impression or any thought. Sustain your mindfulness without distraction and without grasping onto anything at all. You know your awareness is free of grasping insofar as it remains motionless. and maintaining just a peripheral awareness of the in and outflow of the breath. As the breath flows in, arouse your attention. Focus clearly, concentrate, but not on any object, simply stabilizing your awareness in the immediacy of the present moment. Be intensely present 
but with no particular object on which you're focusing. And with each out-breath, deeply relax, while sustaining the flow of knowing. In our normal states of awareness, we tend to be focusing on objects all the time. For the moment, what we attend to is reality. As we attend to objects, that's what appears to us to be real. And our awareness of those objects may be only subliminally conscious. But now, as we simply rest in the present moment without focusing on any object, the reality of our own consciousness looms clearer, brighter, more evident. So as you arrest your awareness in the present moment, occasionally ask, what is this very consciousness that is arising here and now? Focus clearly as you inhale. And as you exhale, relax deeply while sustaining the flow of cognizance.
rather than attending to the objects illuminated by awareness, rest in the sheer luminosity and cognizance of awareness itself. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
So a question from Rhonda. Have any scientific studies been conducted on physiological changes that may occur as a result of long-term meditation practice? In something other than the brain, in areas other than the brain, such as the heart? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, certainly, if you check out the, um, there's a paper, I think it's probably online by now, it's quite become quite well known in this particular niche of meditation research, uh, from the Shamatha Project on telomeres, telomerones, uh, having to do, uh, pertaining to chromosomes, to longevity, that from the Shamatha Project, it turns out that it looks at least suggestive that perhaps a strong meditation may slow the aging process. Uh, so that would be something. Now, blood tests were taken, um, blood tests and other kind of physiological measures. I think also saliva te tests were taken in the Shamatha Project. It was really just a, a broad array. What was it? 22 terabytes of data were gathered in the Shamatha Project, the largest, most extensive study of meditation ever done. And three months is longitudinal in a kind of a short sense. Um, as you well know, um, a major rationale for seeking to create this whole network of contemplative observatories is that such truly longitudinal studies can be conducted by a very good scientist, rigorous research, not just for three months or two months, which is a good start. For many people, that's a long time. Uh, as you are now aware, we're already one-fourth finished with our time here. Was that long? Um, so longitudinal studies that could take place over years or decades uh, and I think it's really, really important that they be done so, especially in one area, uh, for, especially for, for our generation, you and I are the same generation, Rhonda, of people who are approaching, you know, approaching old age, you know, in a few decades. Um, if you meditate, maintain a regular meditative practice that's sound, that's, that's well-conceived, you know, is evidence-based, and not just some new age flim-flam, uh, does that have any impact on the likelihood of succumbing to Alzheimer's, memory loss, cognitive deterioration, senile dementia, and so forth. Um, that's a really big question. And I think if it, but it can only be done with a longitudinal study. You can't do it a, you know, one weeker and say, oh, yes or no. Uh, but if there were some clear evidence that it does, and my strong suspicion is that yes, when I consider, and Andrea could bear this out too, you, we both know so many yogis who have aged and we, if we think of the really serious yogis who've been meditating for decades, how many of them? And this is, this is not a scientific study. This is anecdotal, but that's where science starts with observations. How many old yogis do you know who ha are dementia, have dementia, have severe memory loss, Alzheimer's? I don't know of a single one either. And we've been around. I've been doing this for 40 years. Andre's a little bit younger than I, so what, 30 years maybe? 35, 35 okay? So there. Uh, that's a long time. And so we've had chance to see so many of our teachers pass away and other yogis who may or may not be our teachers. So that's anecdotal evidence, but that certainly is suggestive, right? So you must have started when you were 10. 16, well, pretty close. Uh-huh, yeah, I was ripe old age of 20 when I started. So it's not too late, not too late, Camila. You're not over the hill yet. <laughs> okay, and then here's another one. Uh, when a couple wants to do a long-term shamatha retreat, uh, for, one, for, for example, for one year, does that work? Uh, being with your partner wouldn't make it more difficult, make it more difficult 
and might, might, might being with your partner make it more difficult rather than easier? And how do you deal with sexual attraction? Well, grow old. <laughs> that really works. <laughs> really makes things easier. <laughs> and having said that, um, I've never been in a long-term retreat with my spouse. Um, but I know a, a, a couple who are very dear friends of mine, Nick Siever, who for three years was the CEO here at Tanyapura, his wife Michelle Limantour, and uh, they were in the Shamata Project, what is it now, six, five, six years ago. Um, and then following that, they spent 18 months in retreat, and they're not old. They were, you know, late 30s, early 40s, something like that at the time. Um, and they had a splendid retreat. They had a, a very, very good, very, very meaningful. And I, I have no doubt that it really deeply enriched their, their, their relationship. You know, it was already, I think, very good. I know it was very good, but it certainly enriched their relationship very much. And so if you're in a spousal relationship, I think it would be really ill-advised to say, okay, you go off for one year, and I won't, I won't contact you, and then I'll go off for one year, and you don't contact me. That's going to put a great big hole in your relationship, right? So I don't think that's a good idea at all. Um, so I think there's enormous potential here. And then in a true spiritual friendship, and to my mind, the, the deepest and most meaningful relationships, marital, spousal, romantic relationships, are deep, are steeped in, are embedded, rooted in friendship and optimally spiritual friendship, uh, then this, the issue, issue of sex would be something for which I wouldn't want to say anything. This is your, you know, I really respect people's privacy. This is your business, you know? And then you work it out. Why, why should I be poking my finger in your personal relationships? I think it'd be kind of inappropriate. But work it out yourself. Because you know what you're going into retreat for, not to have sex. You can do that out of retreat. At the same time, should you be absolutely celibate while in retreat? I think I'd just like to not say anything at all. You know what it's all about. And you know also that as you're practicing shamatha, you're seeking to overcome five obscurations that obscure the nature of the sheer luminosity, the natural purity of your own substrate consciousness, right? Five obscuration, remember? And the first one is uh, craving, sensual craving, sensual craving, right? Insofar as we're still caught up in sensual craving in between sessions, for example, or ruminating about sensual cravings while practicing shamatha, uh, well, that's going to be walking backwards. You're walking forward, you're in practicing shamatha, you're walking backwards whenever you fall into that type of fixation, uh, craving, clinging, attachment, and so forth. Uh, but now, to speak a little bit more about sexuality, is desire involved? Is craving, sensual craving involved? Of course it is. Of course it is. But in a very loving relationship, a very meaningful, loving, spousal relationship, spousal, I mean, married or not, that's not my business, I don't care. Um, but is there more going on than simply sexual attraction? Well, I would say yes, by definition. If this is a meaningful relationship, then you're not just attracted to the sexual, I don't know, attractiveness of your partner. There's something much more deep, much, much deeper going on. And so what's emphasis? Where's the emphasis? Okay. So sensual craving, laxity and dullness, excitation and anxiety, ill will, and then debilitating uncertainty. Those are the five obscurations. And the whole thrust of shamatha leading to the threshold to the first dhyana, the actual dhyana itself, is all a matter, a process 
of relieving ourselves, of kind of throwing off the garments, the veils of these five obscurations, all of which are obscuring the sheer luminosity, like a pool of clear water, obscuring the sheer luminosity of awareness itself, and more explicitly, the substrate consciousness. So generally speaking, let's say in a spousal, rela- a spousal okay, two people who are married, or, or a couple, uh, entering into a long-term retreat, uh, the more that your whole way of life, and then explicit your meditative practice, is oriented towards releasing, overcoming, dispelling all five of those obscurations. Also, ill will, laxity and dullness, excitation and guilt, anxiety, or uh, the other one being uh, uncertainty. Then, both on the cushion and off the cushion, you'll be moving towards. And then, in a true spiritual friendship, you'll just be encouraging each other, supporting each other, practicing loving kindness for each other, and doing everything you possibly can to help the other realize his and her aspirations in the retreat. So I think there's great potential there. Great potential. That's my answer. Anything more coming up about our shamatha practice? Yes, go ahead, Aga. Uh, Why did Padmasambhava said only one day? Um, for those who are very gifted, this should be enough. <laughs> there are a lot of teachings out there that are for the very gifted. I mean, next week we're going to go to um, this practice, which is Padmasambhava, now in another context, a mind treasure, whereas this <laughs> is revealed by an earth treasure. Uh, Karmalingba, what, 14th century, something like that? I can't remember exactly. I think 14th century or so. One of the great Tertun, a treasure revealers, from the Enigma tradition, uh, he discovered this text. It was an earth, it was in the earth, or inside a rock or something like that, and he cracked it open like a time capsule. And there were these teachings from Padmasambhava. And so Padmasambhava is teaching, this, teaching this, these phases of the shamatha without a sign. Uh, and when he says one day, I think he's specifically referring to people who are very gifted, one day should nail it. That was 24 hours of practice, and then he'll give the next practice tomorrow. Uh, now, in a, a mind treasure uh, revealed in the 1860s by Dujum Lingba, another of the great Dertun, this treasure was not found in the earth, but actually came to an, in a visionary context. So you're simply meditating, and then woof, then Padmasambhava, in the form of the lake-born Vajra, Soke Doje, manifestation of Padmasambhava, appeared to him. And in this Vajra essence, there, there were three occasions at least. There were more than that, but three very noted occasions in which Dujalima had these visionary teachings that he received directly from Padmasambhava. But these seeds were stored in his mind stream, so to speak. Um, that in this Vajra essence, in this visionary context, then the teachings received went on for 400 pages. And then he was a scribe. He wrote them all down. And the 400 pages consist of a, a, a conversation between the central figure of Swage Doje, the lake-born Vajra, and a circle of disciples, one after another, rising, posing questions, and then having conversation and sometimes even a bit of debate uh, between the disciples in this whole visionary context with Padmasambhava. So in the Vajra essence, then, in that context, uh, then Padmasambhava does teach, very briefly and succinctly, the practice of merging the mind with space. Okay? And, he's, and he's presenting it with utmost simplicity. Just merge your mind with space, you know. Just do that. 
And he says, just do it all day uh, and do it for 20 days. And as a result of that, you may find that you have slipped into a direct realization of Rikpa. You've actually ascertained pristine awareness. In which case, good, you're a person of medium faculties. You should see what the people of sharp faculties are like. Uh, you're a person of medium faculties, which means, therefore, you can skip shamatha, skip vipassana, and go directly to, um, you know, tektra, sustain tektra, and get, go into tutgel, the direct crossing over. Now, this is not just a pointing out instruction. Okay? There are, especially among the great lamas who passed away, there are those who really authentically gave pointing out instructions, such as Dingo Kinsu Rinpoche, Chaturamach is still alive, Tuku Urgen Rinpoche, Dujom Rinpoche, Kangyur Rinpoche. So there are a number of these great ones, the really, truly great ones, uh, for which they're really, within the tradition, there's kind of no doubt at all, these people had very profound realization of Rikpa. So they were fully qualified to give pointing out instructions. And they did, and people would gain some glimmering, some real insight, some taste of Rikpa right there in the presence of the Lama, right there in this kind of, it's called mind-to-mind -mind transmission, okay? Now, I have to say, and a bit of, the skeptic comes up in me, it's very easy to do monkey see, monkey do. To know what the right words are? I read the right words yesterday. I read pointing out instructions by Padmasambhava. Was I giving pointing out instructions? You know, the great guru, Alan Waller. No. I was reading Padmasambhava's pointing out instructions. Um, Dujum Rinpoche, Dingwakensa Rinpoche, when they're giving, they're not reading anybody's script. They're just speaking spontaneously from their own realization. You know? So it's very easy for people nowadays who don't have that realization, frankly, to be a little bit cutting. Monkey see, monkey do. Oh, I remember what it's like. I read that. I, I can do that. Everybody ready for pointing out instructions? I'm going to point out that which I don't, haven't seen myself, but good luck. You know? Uh, so pointing out instructions, when authentically given and authentically received, they give you the fragrance, they give you the taste. And if you're really ready for that, if you are a suitable vessel, then your mind will be so stable. And this is not my opinion, this is Dujum Lingba, this is the great saying this. From that point that you've actually ascertained Rikpa, then your practice becomes that only. And that is you don't do anything at all. All you do is doing nothing at all except for sustaining your awareness of Rikpa. Now you've been, again, like the, I love the, the metaphor, the hound dog who's had the, the child's piece of clothing put to the nose, you've got nothing to do now, nothing whatsoever, than to trace that scent to its source. Right? And so likewise, when authentic master is giving, pointing out instructions to authentically well-prepared, suitable vessels, and it's transmitted, they pick up the scent, then that's, this, that's all they do. They don't do anything at all. They go into jadel, into inactivity, and they are not activating at all their ordinary sense of identity, let alone reified, I am really here, you know, delusional, reified self, let alone that. They're not even activating their conventional sense of being a sentient being. They're not even activating that. They're putting that, tot releasing that entirely, and resting in this awareness of rikpa, which means that they are as continually as, continuously as possible, sustaining the view of reality from the perspective of rikpa. The perspective of rikpa is the perspective of dharmakaya, which is the perspective of a Buddha. And they're just resting in that, in the awareness, I am Buddha. 
And it's not something they're telling themselves, it's something they're actually experiencing because their perspective actually is their perspective of Rikpa, which is none other than Dharmakaya. And they do not activate any other perspective. Oh yeah, meanwhile, back on the ranch, I'm Alan Wallace, PhD. They don't go there. They recognize that's fluff, that's a dream. In other words, it's like being in the presence, being in a dream, being totally lucid. I mean, one, well, really lucid. And then not doing anything in the dream by way of the dream persona, but just resting in that ongoing flow of awareness of being awake and viewing the dream from the perspective of being awake. And you do nothing until that comes into full blossoming. And that's called Buddhahood. So even the Tutgel, even the direct crossing over practice, is utterly passive. You're not doing anything. You're not visualizing this, reciting this, doing this. You're not actually doing anything at all in this culminating phase of authentic Dzogchen practice. You're simply positioning your body in one of three postures, which are not difficult. And you're, you're setting your gaze, and then you're simply being present with a certain domain of experience, and everything else just happens to you. As you then, it's like receiving grace, but not from somebody else. You're simply receiving, you're unveiling, but you're not doing anything else. It's happening to you. That the potentials of your consciousness then just flow and flow and flow and manifest to you. Right? So I can't have no idea what you asked, but I thought that was a pretty cool answer. <laughs> Ah, so in this Vajra essence, when he refers to merging mind with space, he's teaching this as a 20-day schedule for realizing Rikpa, and then just sustaining that and going on to Tutkil. Because if you've realized Rikpa to that depth, then you got shamatha as a bonus. You actually have achieved shamatha. It was unveiled. These are the people who probably achieved it in a past life. And they're just going, oh, there it is. They just blew off the dust. These are people of medium capacity. People of sharp faculty, they just hear the teachings and they immediately re re realize Rikpa. Boom, boom, simultaneous. Not that slow. Boom, one click. Gotcha. Like on, the, um, you know, like on a computer. One click. Does it all. You know? So that sharp faculty, here medium faculty. So it's presented as a very direct 20-day strategy for realizing Rikpa. But now there's this beautiful symmetry here, and that is in, in Padmasambhava's in Natural Liberation, when he's teaching shamatha without a sign, he's teaching this as shamatha. Otherwise, he wouldn't call it shamatha without a sign. It's a shamatha practice designed to settle your mind in a natural state to dissolve your coarse mind into the substrate consciousness, which means then your mind is settled in its natural state, right? Uncontrived, melted, to slush, not to pure, you know, rikpa, uh, the fluid state. While presenting it as a shamatha method, he then adds, which we'll see shortly, tomorrow or the next day, this practice, when one is inverting and releasing, inverting and releasing, right into the very nature of the, the subject, the agent, the observer, he said this may be sufficient to realize rikpa. So even though he's presenting it as shamatha, it may suffice to realize rikpa. Right? And then now, and, and that's just true, you'll see that in the text. Why I've added, I've had the... Uh, the chutzpah, to add a fourth method of shamatha here is on the basis of the following, and that is this fourth one being merging the mind with space. 
Padmasambhava does not present that as a shamatha technique. He doesn't actually say it's this or that. He just says, do that, and within 20 days you may actually realize rikpa. That's what he does say, right? In which case, then jump, you know, move on. But it occurred to me quite vividly during my recent six-month solitary retreat, doing that practice, um, that since I've been, during the same time, those six months, just saturating my mind in these five mind treasures of Dujum Lingba. So I was rather familiar with the lay of the land, because when you translate and then you polish, polish, you get very familiar with the text, let alone when you're also practicing 12, 14 hours a day. Uh, that from the multiple ones, there was kind of a, a converging of elements from different teachings that, that cropped up in different texts, coming together that really kind of fleshed out or gave more detail, more structure, to merging mind with space. Because that's all he said, merge mind with space, with no commentary at all. And so drawing on the teachings that are sprinkled throughout the five mind treasures, then I, gave an, I, I, I came upon an interpretation. I guess that's how you'd say it. I don't really quite know. But it kind of dawned on me, aha, here's a way of doing this that is still thoroughly based upon Dujun Lima's teachings or Padmasambhava's, uh, but now all is commentary to that one-liner, Merge Mind with Space, and then finding that, well, even if in 20 days you don't have a direct breakthrough to pristine awareness, this actually is a really bona fide shamatha practice. Absolutely. You know? So just as the shamatha practice may turn out to be a Dzogchen meditation to realize Rikpa, this meditation, Merge Mind with Space, that's it, which is designed to realize Rikpa, may actually suffice, be quite elegant, quite sublime, as a shamatha practice. If you're not a person of media capacity, well, then maybe this can still help on a more basic level. Okay? So I think your question must have been in there someplace. <laughs> one day, one day, for those who are quite gifted. For those who are not, then hang out a bit longer. Hola, so good. I'll see you at 4.30. Enjoy your day. And he says, in all activities, sustain the flow of mindfulness. So there it is. You can download the, the text anytime you like from the front desk. See you later. <laughs>